Lord, you are here with us, and we ask that you might help us to hear what you would have to say to us. Be that here, be that in Sunday In Jesus' name, Amen. There are certain words which they don't necessarily mean anything bad of themselves, but they're often used in quite a negative way. I'll give you an example I want to talk about. One of my favourite programmes is the programme Yes Minister or Yes Prime Minister. Yeah, uh, it, was, it was all more in the 80s and 90s. And there was one episode where Sir Humphrey Appleby, the, the senior civil servant, manages to stop the minister in his tracks simply by describing one of his policy initiatives as courageous. Yes, courageous. Yeah, it could cost you votes that, and they suddenly doesn't want to do it. But another such word is the word extravagant. Most of the time when we suggest someone was extravagant, we were we are really saying, I wouldn't have spent that on that. And I hear figures say, say that some people spend on their weddings. I think, great, that would have been a decent deposit on a house. <laughs> or I watch Top Gear. And I see them driving around in these supercars, and I think, who would spend that on a car? Have they never heard of depreciation? The shirt I'm wearing today was bought from a Dutch company online during lockdown. And I have a friend from the Netherlands, and when I bought it, I told her, oh, I bought a shirt from the Netherlands. And she says, oh, what was the company? And I told her, and she says, oh, that's quite extravagant. And I thought, well, I wouldn't have it shocked you. He said, no, 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 it's just that they're actually famous for having quite loud shirts. You know, I said, I think it's about flamboyant. But he says, I don't really know how much they cost. But maybe she did. I don't know. But there's, a, but there's a couple of things about extravagance. One is that it's actually quite subjective. I have a friend who has an office. And if you went into his office, it looks like the bridge on the Starship Enterprise. There's so much tech there. He spent a fortune on the stuff. And I ask him, do you really need all of that? And he'll say, well, yeah, that's what I enjoy. Other people will spend it on holidays, for example. And that hints at something else about extravagance. When we express our surprise at what someone has spent on something, we tend to express it in terms of what else they could have done with the money. You spent five grand on a new telly? You could have been like ketchup, right? Yeah. And, and when we do that, we're kind of expressing what our priorities are. The, the last comment that, that was suggested, you think that food and having a nice kitchen is more important than being able to watch Ireland win the Grand Slam on the latest extra super ultra higher than ever definition television. <laughs> and sometimes, but you know, sometimes it's not always a bad thing. Sometimes we might actually want people to be extravagant. There was a story a few years ago of a man who was kidnapped in New York. And the kidnapper sent a ransom note to his wife in which they demanded $100,000 if she wanted to see her husband alive. And she did pay a ransom. But not before she talked the kidnappers down to 30,000. <laughs> and you've got to wonder how that, how that conversation went. 100,000? For him? Who do you think he is? George Clooney? 
final offer, deal or no deal. And in the end, the man was returned unharmed. The kidnappers were caught. The money was returned and so on. But you've got to wonder how he felt when he found out his wife had paid an upside price to get it back. And I'd like to think that if we were in a similar situation, Jules would spare no expense to get me back. <laughs> she wouldn't haggle at the price and say, can I think about that? Well, this morning we read of a woman who was determined to honor Jesus, and she was very extravagant about doing it. No expense spared. And we, and we also see that kind of question of the expense, and what are her priorities? And there's that kind of looking on and thinking, what else she could have done with the money? As John tells it, the incident occurs on the evening before Jesus rides into Jerusalem on what we would call his Palm Sunday, and we'll look at it next week. He's, be, he's about to be healed as a king, and at the start of the week, it's the start of the week which will culminate in his crucifixion. And they're at dinner, presumably they're at Mary and Martha's because Martha's serving. Lazarus is there, which must have given the uh, evening an extra dimension because it must have, you know, when you've been with someone who recovers from a serious illness, you know, you might, you know, you might, you know and you wondered if you'd ever see them again. You know, the fact that you get the chance, you know, it gives you a sense of what it would be like. Except Lazarus hadn't actually been ill, he'd actually been dead for four days. And I'm pretty sure his advanced care plan hadn't included being dead for four days. <laughs> and then suddenly, from outside the back side, Mary takes a bottle of perfume and pours it over his feet. Now, not just a dribble, a full pint of the stuff. And then very much against the convention of the day, she lets down her hair and uses that to run the perfume into his feet. And the sweet aroma of the perfume fills the room, where it jostles for position alongside the slightly embarrassed tension of the match. And I kind of, mm, I don't know what's going on here, kind of glances. And, and it's not spoken, but I wonder if Martha feels a little bit put out that after all her efforts, she's being upstaged by Mary again. And then Judas speaks up and effectively says, what a waste. Does she not know what that's worth? If she didn't want it, why didn't she just sell it and give it to the poor? And however his motives are interpreted, I'm pretty certain that Judas wasn't the only one thinking that. And Jesus' response is quite cryptic. Leave her alone. This perfume was supposed to be saved from my burial. And then he goes on to say, you're always going to have the poor with you but you will not always have me. Now, taken in isolation, Jesus' comment about the poor, it seems quite selfish or even callous. Certainly, I've heard people use the poor you will always have with you as an excuse to do nothing. It's like, oh, what's the point in even trying to do anything about poverty? It's a never-ending job. There'll always be poor people. But it takes a very selective approach to the life and teaching of Jesus to suggest that that is what he meant. Jesus said he would come to bring good news to the poor. He and his followers carried an alms bag. When he died, his material legacy, which you know, less than a week after the incident we shared this morning, it amounts to no more than the clothes he has on his back. And what's more, the background of this passage was Passover. 
And you know the way at Christmas we tend, you know, it, it tends to be much easier to do kind of charitable stuff sort of around Christmas, you know, people sort of, you know, the charities and stuff like that. Well, Passover was a bit like that for Jews. It was a time when there would be an official offering for the poor at the temple. And although John tells us at the, of Jesus, I'll tell you about this, at surface level, when, Je when Jesus was talking about the perfume being given to the poor, he's not generally involved in you could have found a poor person and given it. He's actually referring to this specific collection. We could have sold this, we could have gone up to the temple, we could have made an offering to this specific thing. But Jesus doesn't actually just come up with this quote off the top of his head. It's a quote from the book of Deuteronomy. And it points in the opposite direction to the way it's sometimes used. It's about cancelling debt and alleviating poverty. A sense of the Deuteronomy passage was that God had been generous to them when he released them from slavery. So they should be generous to others. And it was an acknowledgement that because there would always be poor among them, that the work of alleviating poverty would and should never be done. It was actually designed as a warning to counteract what we euphemistically just call today compassion. And nonetheless, Jesus' comments are designed to defend Mary against the charge that she has somehow got her priorities mixed up. What might that say to us? What shifted her priorities? And what might that say to us, particularly in the season of Lent? See, crises do have a way of getting us to rearrange our priorities. We've probably seen all those films where one of the lead characters never makes it home to the kids' school play. He's quite happy to tread on top of everyone to get to the top of his company. It's quite often man in these films. And then disaster strikes, they hit the bottom, and they suddenly realize all the things that are really, really important to them. And he promises, oh, if I come out the other side of this, I'll do it all differently. And one such crisis is an awareness of mortality. Although it wasn't necessarily planned as such, it's appropriate that we have Linda here today because Linda here today because it encourages us to at least consider our own mortality. And sometimes when people do face a life-threatening illness or situation, it can rearrange their priorities. It might not always make a completely positive thing. For example, there is a high rate of divorce amongst couples in which one partner has suffered from a serious illness. It causes them to emerge with a new sense of purpose or urgency. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, and this, this is probably about as close as a brush of fame as I'm ever going to get, uh, at the Oscars, a film from Northern Ireland called, won an award called An Irish Goodbye. And James, the guy here in the middle, went to school with one of my nephews, so that's as close as I get to fame. But it focused on, their, on these two brothers trying to work their way through their deceased mother's bucket list, stuff that she'd wanted to do before she kicked the bucket. 
And I want to suggest to you that both the shift of priorities and that sense of urgency were true of Mary. An awareness of mortality and the effect it had on Mary pervades our reading this morning. And at one level, it's quite straightforward. She's the sister of Lazarus, who just a matter of few verses ago had been raised from the dead by Jesus. From her perspective, her brother had been dead and was way, way beyond hope. Lazarus hadn't just been ill when Jesus had shown up. He'd been dead for days. And yet Jesus had returned her brother to What value could you place on that? Surely like the guy in the kidnap story with which I began, he couldn't put a price on that. It goes way beyond should he use 50 mils or 100 mils on his feet. From Mary's perspective, Judas would have been not, nothing but someone who, you know, we, we talk about people who know the price of everything and the value of nothing. How much is enough to honor someone who has done that for her? And that might have shifted the priorities. But there's another sort of darker sense in which mortality broods over this passage. One that may introduce a sense of urgency into her actions. Each of the four Gospels tell a variation of this story, and all of them, bar Luke, have Jesus point explicitly towards his death and burial. In part, the way John sets up the story creates that brilliant shadow. It's bracketed first by a plot and arrest to kill Jesus, and then, because Lazarus had not unreasonably become a local celebrity, there was even a plot to kill Lazarus too. And within that little scene, the brooding shadow of death is present. The Passover at which Jesus will be crucified is in sight. It's only six days away. Jesus is in Bethany, a village which lies in the shadow of Jerusalem. It's a mere two, three miles away. It's the final stopping point on the road to Jerusalem where Jesus is going to be crucified. And after that, Jesus' direct reference to his burial sin and saying that they will not always have him with them. And a sense that amongst one, one level should have been a celebration of the life of Lazarus, it's actually shot through with darkness. And we don't know to what extent people around that table realized that Jesus' life was in danger. But it's hard to believe they had no sense of it. And what's more, as Matthew and Luke Mark went to the story, the triumphal story would happen the next day, and it's a premeditated act. Jesus has raised the donkey. He sends two disciples ahead of him to pick up the donkey. And, and Jesus doesn't see this. He just goes straight to Jerusalem, and you know, then Jesus. So there, there's going to be a plot to kill him. And rather than just trying to hide away, Jesus floats us up the street and says, here I am. He's arranged to pick up a donkey in the region in which this story takes place. But before he does it, as John, he stops to have a last meal with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And as a result, they probably know exactly what Jesus is planning to do. And they're also aware how it's likely to be received. And it's not unreasonable to say that Mary wants to honor Jesus because this might be the last chance she has to do it. Her extravagant worship is perfect. 
formed in the shadow of death. If she doesn't do it now, she never will. And that awareness of mortality shifts her priorities and her sense of urgency. The poor she could help any time. And she had no reason to assume that she didn't. But she wasn't always going to have Jesus. What does this have to do with us? And why, apart from the fact that this incident occurs so close to the crucifixion, are we pointed towards it in Lent? As Galina has said this morning, mortality is a bit of a taboo subject. The mere fact that I guarantee at least some people are sat here and go, good grief, how could you be a bit more than the press in this morning? There's testimony of that. And even as Christians, we can live to the fact that we are Easter people, we are about resurrection, but we can't overlook the fact that resurrection reaches us via the cross. And as, just as we celebrate Easter at a time when new life is springing up from the earth, so for us in the northern hemisphere at least, Lent comes at a time of deadness. And it's designed to direct us towards it. Yes, we can face it in the light of the promise of the resurrection, but the season retains its emphasis on mortality. It starts with Ash Wednesday. People, some, and some traditions will have the cross marked on their head in ash, reminding us that we are dust and we will return to dust. And yet it's not designed to leave us depressed and despairing, but to shift our priorities and awaken in us our sense of urgency. For something that is true of life is that there are things that you can do at any time, and that's fair enough, but there are some things which, callings which we will never fulfill unless we grasp the chance when it comes our way. We can, we can catch a vision in a moment to do something fine and generous, and then we procrastinate. We leave it till tomorrow, and it passes, and it's left undone. Life is often uncertain, and if we don't seize the moment God gives us, things might never be Back in the early 90s, there's a, there's a, there's a film out currently about this. Uh, back in the early 90s, uh, the rock band U2 were doing a really big tour around the world. And uh, it had massive big screens all around the place. Uh, and, the, uh, and, and part of their concert in the 90s was that they would interview people living in Sarajevo the heart of the war that was breaking up what was then Yugoslavia. People said, what? Why? Why are you doing that? Why are you putting a dampener on a concert like that? And he said he didn't want his children when they grew up saying, Daddy, when that was going on, you had a voice of millions of people listening to you. You could have drawn attention to ethnic cleansing. What did you do with your voice? And he didn't want this answer to be nothing. And that sense of urgency that is around today 
if this generation doesn't tackle climate change. We get the warnings. If we don't act now, it'll be too late. And for us, it might not be of such a grand scale. But for Paul, as Paul tells us in Ephesians, God has something for each one of us to do. And that sort of directs us towards the reality that there will come a time when our part to do it, when our, when our chance to do it will pass us by. And then we need to seize the moment that God has given us. And Lent calls us to reshape our priorities, to awaken our urgency to the task that God has given us. But if today we hear his voice, it mustn't harden our hearts, because it might not come again. Turning to this passage in Lent, it was even beyond us, and points towards a reason to, like Mary, be extravagant in our worship. Just as the shadow of Christ's crucifixion hangs over the passage we are shared this morning, in this season we are taken to the cross, and we are reminded of the extravagance of the love of the lengths to which God was prepared to go to reach us. So that we, who lived in the shadow of death, need fear no evil, but, but could place our trust in the new life God has for us. But we're also promised that the God whom we worship has gone before us and promises to bring us through to raise us to new life. That's it. And how much is too much to offer in return for a love like God's? Rest in peace, we pray.